Cha. Hello and welcome to City Breaks Edinburgh, Episode 9, Museums. I'm Marion Jones. Museums, I hear you thinking. We've been to lots of those, and it's true, we have. The old town museums, like the real Mary King's Close and Gladstone's Land. We popped into the Georgian House Museum in the episode on the new town. I'm also saving the art galleries and the Writers' Museum for later episodes. So what does that leave? Well, quite a lot, it turns out. And I'm going to focus today on a little clutch of museums which could tell you lots about Edinburgh, its history and its culture. Starting with the big hitter, the National Museum for Scotland, and continuing then with two other museums on the Royal Nile, the Museum of Edinburgh and the People's Story, and a further two museums which deal with Edinburgh's medical history, its role as a centre of medical excellence, a place where students got the very best training, and still do, I'm sure, and where a number of renowned medics and scientists collected and did amazing things. And there are two little museums about that, the Anatomical Museum and Surgeon's Hall. So, starting with the biggie then, the National Museum for Scotland, very well introduced in Duncan J. Smith's book, Only in Edinburgh, in which he wrote the following. A spectacular entrance to the museum is provided by the refurbished Victorian Grand Gallery. Based on the Crystal Palace, it consists of a light-filled atrium, flanked by balconies, supported on rows of cast-iron columns. The disparate objects displayed, from a huge South Pacific feasting bowl to a 19th-century lighthouse lens, provide a taster of the treasures to come. He goes on to explain that that leads into the Discoveries Gallery, which celebrates Scottish innovation, and to explain that, quote, it would take several trips to really appreciate the many themed galleries that follow, the natural world, art, design and fashion, world cultures and science and technology, which includes Dolly the Sheep, the world's first cloned mammal. The National Museum of Scotland's own website tells us that here in the Grand Gallery, you can say hello to the massive skull, maybe the whale, that, for example, in the Fashion and Style Gallery, you can see gems by Jean Muir, Pringle of Scotland, Unusual Twists on Classic Tartan by Vivian Westwood, and that sets the tone. Very much a world status museum, but with a distinctly Scottish flavour. And what else would you expect? If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you'll know that I've got a bit of an aversion to lists. So, how to give a flavour of what's in the museum without just resorting to lists? I've picked out a tiny, tiny number of things to just mention. And one display I thought was really interesting was the one on Scotland and the Caribbean, which doesn't shy away from telling the story of Scotland's role in the slave trade. There's an explanation of the Darien scheme, set up in 1695, to give Scottish merchants and investors the opportunities that their English counterparts had in the East India Company. There are exhibits, such as William King Mitchell's Silver Communion Cups. He was one of the biggest plantation owners in Jamaica, and he donated some Silver Communion Cups to the church in his home village back in Scotland, which, as the website says, helped to cement a reputation of moral respectability at home. So highlighting the work of Christian missionaries out in places like Jamaica and raising questions about what they were actually doing over there. Another exhibit in this section is something called a Pern winding wheel, used in the linen industry that developed out of the transatlantic slave system and created so many thousands of new jobs and opportunities across Scotland. Then there's a one-guinea note from the Leith Banking Company, 
which also grew out of the profits made from the linen trade. It's explained how Scottish banks financed plantation owners or held mortgages for their properties, using enslaved people as collateral and often owning slaves themselves. And there's a medallion with a portrait of Henry Dundas, described as the most powerful Scottish person in the British government at the end of the 18th century. He was Home Secretary in 1792, when William Wilberforce was bringing his bill for the abolition of the slave trade to Parliament, and the role that Dundas played was to add an amendment. Through this, he made the abolition a much slower process, which worked, as the museum literature explains, quote, to the great relief of the many plantation owners in Parliament. There's lots too, of course, on Scottish royalty, particularly James VI, a little figure of him, a £20 gold piece made during his reign in 1575, a silver medal struck for his marriage to Anna of Denmark, and a New Testament and psalm book from 1619, reminding us that it was this King James, of course, who commissioned the new English translation of the Bible, still used today and known as the King James Bible of 1611. In the section on James there's also a witch's iron collar, reflecting the fact that James was very interested in witchcraft. When his wife-to-be, Anna, was being brought to Scotland from Denmark, and the ship that she was travelling in was hit by a storm, the idea arose that this was because of the role of witches, and several unfortunate women were indeed arrested, tortured and executed, James himself playing an active part in all of this. Coming closer to our own times, there's an exhibit known as the Democracy for Scotland tent. The actual tent used in the Democracy for Scotland campaign from 1993 to 1997, for all that time a vigil was maintained. The tent was continuously occupied for 1,980 days until the moment when it was finally agreed that yes, Scotland would have its own parliament. And one of the most famous exhibits in the whole museum, the Lewis chess pieces. 93 chess pieces in total, found on the Scottish island of Lewis in the 1830s, Exquisite little pieces, only a few centimetres high, made mainly of walrus ivory, one or two carved from sperm whale teeth, and dating from the late 12th or early 13th century. And for all that they're from Norway and are 700 years plus old, there they are, the queens seated on elaborate thrones, the kings with a sword lying across their knees, bishops, and a knight on horseback bearing a spear and a shield. Fascinating. Sticking just with the history of Scotland, there are so many things I haven't mentioned. The Picts, Bonnie Prince Charlie, letters written home by Scottish soldiers in the World War I trenches. Just all sorts of goodies. Moving on a little bit then to other museums in Edinburgh. Let's start with the Museum of Edinburgh, down towards the bottom end of the Royal Mile. It's in what the museum's website described as a maze of 16th century buildings, so that's interesting in its own right and also some of the exhibits. For example, the National Covenant is there, that document from 1638 which led to civil war, the document which Presbyterians collected together to sign to protest against Charles I and his religious policy, signed in Greyfriars Kirk, and telling Charles quite definitely that even though he was king, the Scottish Church was not going to allow him to bring his English liturgical practice north of the border. And you can see right here in the Museum of Edinburgh this document made of deerskin and signed by about 4,000 members of the Presbyterian Church. 
They also have the plans of James Craig when he was designing the new town in the early 18th century. There's a collection of personal effects belonging to the First World War commander, Earl Haig. And perhaps the one you most want to see, the collar and bowl belonging to Greyfriars Bobby, the little dog who lived around the churchyard next to Greyfriars Kirk, who's really one of the symbols of Edinburgh. And not far away from the Museum of Edinburgh is another little museum called The People's Story, which aims to give a unique insight into Edinburgh's working-class people from the 18th century right up to the late 20th century. All sorts of stuff in there, tableau, original objects, and a real emphasis on personal stories using the actual words of Edinburgh's people, using oral histories and written sources to tell real stories. There is, for example, a collection of banners from various street protests and political reform movements. There's a quite grisly collection relating to crime and punishment in the 18th and 19th centuries. And there are tableaux recreating scenes from daily life, whether that be at work or at home. There is, for example, a bookbinder's workshop. There's a wartime kitchen from the 1940s. There's an Edinburgh tea room and a jail cell, all reconstructed. So you really get a sense of what they were like. There is also an umbrella organisation called Museums and Galleries of Edinburgh, including these last two and some 200 monuments. And they run a project called Old Reiki Retold. So they make it their business to retell all sorts of stories from the city based on themes and using materials in any of their museums. We hope, they say, to spark conversations about our amazing collections and their hidden histories. And there are dozens of examples of what they've been up to. For example, a project called Celebrating Five Pioneering Women of Edinburgh. To celebrate International Women's Day in 2021, they asked five members of staff to choose one woman each from anywhere in any of the museums. And so details were unearthed about, for example, Agnes Henderson-Brown, a prominent Edinburgh-born suffragette, one of only six women who participated in a walk from Edinburgh to London in support of women's suffrage. A different project highlighted playbills from Edinburgh's theatres and unearthed fascinating things such as a playbill from 1822 for a performance of Walter Scott's Rob Roy, put on during the visit of George IV. A programme was produced promising, quote, original music, appropriate scenery, machinery, dresses and decorations. That dates, of course, from 1822, when George IV came to Edinburgh, and alongside it a much more elaborate colour programme, dating from 1895, for a performance of Cinderella at the Edinburgh Palace Theatre. You can see all of this online and I'll put the link in the show notes so that you can find it. I noticed that the old Reiki Retold also deals with Bobby, Greyfriars Bobby, and fills in quite a lot of details that I didn't find anywhere else, telling us in fact that the story is a little bit more complicated than I had realised. So yes, there was a dog who lived in the Kirkyard. It was looked after by various people. It was good for the local businesses. And so when he died in 1867, a replacement dog had to be found. Another Sky Terrier believed in fact to be the one on whom the famous statue that you can see on Candlemaker Row was based. So this new Bobby was officially adopted by the City of Edinburgh and the provost himself paid for Bobby's dog licence and his leather collar with a brass plaque inscribed Greyfriars Bobby from the Lord Provost 1867. And he also bought him 
a little tin dish for his food, and these are the two items I mentioned earlier that you can see on display at the Museum of Edinburgh. And it is then the second Bobby who is buried just inside the gate of Greyfriars Kirkyard, and who was the model for the monument erected to him in the road just outside. I also learnt a fact which I didn't notice when I actually saw the monument, and that is that, yes, it's a water fountain, and it's on two levels, the lower part being for dogs to drink from, the upper part being, as the website puts it, for humans, or especially tall dogs. So then, moving on to Edinburgh's fantastic medical reputation, and the two museums associated with that. Michael Fry, in his book Edinburgh, A History of the City, stresses this, writing of the beginnings of the 19th century that, quote, the medical professors of Edinburgh wielded godlike authority over theatre, classroom and public health in general. And he tells a couple of stories which illustrate some of the reasons why we owe so much to the Edinburgh doctors at this period. One is the story of local Leith doctor Thomas Latter, who put his mind to trying to do something about the dreadful cholera epidemics which caused so many deaths in the 1830s. It's a very frustrating story because Thomas Latter discovered that if you injected the sufferer with a saline solution, this would act as a remedy for the worst symptoms. But unfortunately, one of these grand Edinburgh doctors, James Gregory, described as being, quote, chair of practice of physic, scion of an academic dynasty dating back two centuries, disagreed and saw to it that Thomas Latter's solution wasn't used nearly as much as it should have been. Result, says Michael Fry, nobody else followed Latter's procedures and thousands died a squalid death. And then, perhaps a little better known, is James Young Simpson, another Edinburgh doctor, who had left his West Lothian home and come to the city of Edinburgh, first of all to study Greek and Latin, and to read the current authors, Byron and Scott, but who then completed medical training and qualified as a house surgeon. He was one of those saints who went out and about into what Mr Fry describes as the stinking tenements of the port of Leith, where he was horrified by what he saw and began wondering if nothing could be done about this. As James Young Simpson himself put it, cannot something be done to render the patient unconscious while under acute pain without interfering with the free and healthy play of the natural functions? He eventually became Edinburgh's Professor of Midwifery, a post he held for 30 years, and not forgetting all that he'd seen out and about as a practising doctor, he continued the search for an effective anaesthetic. There's a wonderful description in Michael Fry's book of how eventually this came about. Quote, he did this at home in Queen Street, using himself and colleagues as guinea pigs. The stuff they sampled often produced unpleasant side effects until the great day of the 19th of January, 1847, when they tried ether. They sat around a table and drank tumblers of it. Immediately an unwanted hilarity seized the party. They became bright-eyed, very happy and very loquacious, expiating on the delicious aroma of the new fluid. The conversation was of unusual intelligence and quite charmed the listeners. The babble grew louder and louder until, a moment more, then all was quiet, and then a crash. The guinea pigs had dropped off into a deep sleep and then fallen under the table. Soon Simpson discovered that chloroform made an even better anaesthetic. Michael Fry goes on to explain that this doctor too had to fight the medical establishment, many of whom dismissed his ideas. 
But fortunately for all of us, help was at hand from a rather strange quarter, Queen Victoria, who decided that she would use chloroform for the birth of her son in 1853. This was a grand success. Queen Victoria declared it an excellent intervention, and that was all the publicity that was needed to persuade everybody else that there was something in it. And let's face it, she knew what she was talking about, because this birth in 1853 was that of her eighth child, Leopold, and so when she declared it to be a good thing, people really had to take notice. So then, on the back of all of that, two medical museums, the Anatomical Museum and Surgeon's Hall Museum. The Anatomical Museum has a collection of 12,000 objects and specimens which tell the story of 300 years of anatomical teaching at the University of Edinburgh, as just mentioned, really the city to study medicine in the 19th century. The museum itself dates from 1884, and bizarrely, some of the first exhibits you will encounter as you go in are two elephant skeletons. Inside, most of the rest is of human origin. Some quite grisly things. The skull of George Buchanan, who was tutor to James VI, for example. A dissected body from 1788. The remains of Mr Burke, he of Burke and Hare fame. The pair of criminals who operated around the grass market. First robbing graves and selling the bodies to the medical department. And then upping their profits by murdering people, so they would have more bodies to sell to the medical department. There's a haunting facial cast of him, taken shortly before his execution in 1829, on display just next to his skeleton. And there are also the remains of one John Howison, also from the 1830s, interesting for two different reasons. Firstly, his was the last body of a person to be hanged, which was then sent to the university's medical school. In 1832, an act was brought in called the Anatomy Act, putting a stop to this rather grisly tradition. And secondly, he was the very first person to plead insanity as a mitigating factor for the crime that he'd committed. He was known as the Crammond Murderer, Crammond being the place in which he had killed a widow and was arrested and tried. A plea for insanity was made, his landlady was questioned, and she did indeed report his strange behaviour, as she called it. The plea was rejected, he was found guilty and hanged, but, much more recently, work has been done on his remains which indicates, quote, almost a textbook case for schizophrenia, then unrecognised as an illness. His remains are on display in the museum, and recent work has been done on them to create an image of how he would have looked. And lastly then, Surgeon's Hall Museum, which also focuses on the history of medicine in Edinburgh. There is a pathology section, one of the largest in the world, which takes a historical approach, starting with the intriguingly named Cabinets of Curiosity from the 1500s, and telling the story across the ages of how specimens have been prepared and used and preserved. There's a history of surgery section, showing you what surgery was like in the days before anaesthesia, telling the story of some of the city's most famous doctors, the ones I've already mentioned, and Joseph Lister, whose discovery of antiseptic was such a breakthrough. There's even a little dedicated anatomy theatre with an interactive dissection table. That sounds quite gory. And some material on the history of forensics in Edinburgh. And then, if you want to learn about even more horrors, you can pass on to the dental collection, which traces the history of dentistry from earliest times right up to the present day, 
has artefacts from all over the world. There are lots of exhibits of actual dental instruments, other things which help tell the story, prints and paintings, for example, models. And there's a mock-up of a 19th century dentist's office, complete with 19th century instruments. So I hope I've managed to convey the idea that there are a whole collection of museums in Edinburgh worthy of your time and attention. I guess nobody's going to all of them. I hope I've managed to give you enough information to decide which ones might appeal most to you. I haven't quite finished with museums because I'm saving some for future episodes. There's the Writers' Museum on the Royal Mile, which will feature in an episode on the main writers connected to Edinburgh. And there are several art galleries, not least the National Gallery of Scotland, which I'm planning to collect together in an episode on art. All that to come, but neither of those is next week's episode when, in fact, we're going to Leith, the centuries-old area that's operated as the port for Edinburgh, close enough to be within walking distance, but very separate in its atmosphere, somewhere with a fascinating history of its own, the place where many people have first arrived in Edinburgh, think Mary Queen of Scots in the 16th century, the fanfare for the arrival of King George IV in 1823, and not forgetting all the cruise ship passengers who stopped by today. Many, I imagine, go straight into Edinburgh city centre. Others perhaps linger in Leith itself. Perhaps to explore the history, maybe to enjoy the independent shops, cafes and restaurants which abound there today, or perhaps to visit its best-known attraction, the Royal Yacht Britannia, decommissioned in the 1990s after 40-plus years of service to the royal family and laid to rest here in Leith in its new role as a museum ship. All of that to come next week, but for the moment, thank you very much for listening today, and let me attempt once again to sign off in Gaelic, because I have attempted to learn those two phrases, thank you and goodbye. Here goes then. Tarpa leave, agus marshin leave. <laughs>